So as we take another look at the well-loved story of David and Goliath, there's one question that's just begging to be asked. Where did David get his confidence? Tell me, where did David get the confidence to fight Goliath? Where does a 16-year-old shepherd boy get the confidence to take on a seasoned warrior like Goliath? Where did he develop this, this internal courage uh, where he could take a, a strong stand and a bold risk when the rest of the Israelite army cowered in fear? Where do you and I get this kind of confidence to take the same kind of risk, the same, take the same kind of stand in the midst of a battle that threatens our very lives? That's the question we're going to answer this morning right from the story of David and Goliath. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we look at this great story again. And as you're getting there, I'll fill you in on the details because you know the story. A teenage shepherd boy from Bethlehem stands up to this fighting this Philistine fighting machine named Goliath, while the rest of the Israelite army cowers in fear. David not only slays this trash-talking giant, but he does it after telling the giant exactly how he's going to take him down. I mean, where does David get this bravado? Where does he get this courage? Where does he get this confidence? Well, I can tell you where he did not get it. He did not get it from watching the other Israelite soldiers. We'll begin reading where we left off last week in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and he set out from Bethlehem, just as Jesse had directed. He reached the Israelite camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, that is Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. So watching his fellow Israelite soldiers, including his three eldest brothers, did not inspire any confidence in young David. I mean, David arrives at the front lines, he greets his brothers, and he hears the giant's threats for the first time, only to watch Israel's finest trained fighting men run like frightened schoolgirls from this bellowing giant. I mean, this certainly wouldn't be a confidence builder. Your heroes run from the battle lines because of the giant's threats. It had to be disheartening at best, watching this display of fear and genuine terror in the eyes of, of the Israelite soldiers would drain any courage or confidence that David arrived with. He did not get his confidence from watching the other Israelite soldiers. And, and just in case you think David is like Teflon, like he's not real, like he's super spiritual and unaffected by the normal fears and thoughts and desires of a pretty typical 16-year-old boy, the next several verses should, should convince you otherwise. Reading in verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man, this giant keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? and removes a disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The soldiers repeated to David what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills Goliath. So after running away from the giant and his threats, the, the soldiers started talking amongst themselves about the reward available to the person who was confident enough or brave enough or perhaps crazy enough to take on the blustering giant and defeat him. The fighting men repeat to one another what they all know. And David overhears this, and, and David's response is, excuse me, w would you repeat that? What will be done for the man who, who kills the Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? I, I didn't quite hear you. Tell me again what you're talking about. Who is this guy anyway, David says, and where does he get away talking to us like that? Can you see David's teenage mind at work here? trying to do the risk-reward analysis in his head. See, David reflects on what he's thought he's heard. The guy who kills the giant gets great wealth, is exempt from taxes, and gets the king's daughter. Just to make sure, David asked the soldiers to repeat what he's heard about the reward promised to the one who kills the giant. Because he's thinking, okay, downside risk. Downside risk, big enemy, he's got some big weapons, could lose my life. Very likely he'll kill me. That's bad. Then upside reward, he goes, okay, big money, exempt from taxes, and I get the girl. Can you see it? You know what decision he's made, don't you? He thought about it for a couple seconds, he says, oh, I'm, I'm doing this. Are you kidding me? Big money and I get the girl too? I'm in. Don't tell me he was anything but a 16-year-old boy going, this sounds too good to be true. How tough can it be? That's what he's thinking. I'm not convinced that this attractive reward would generate any additional confidence. Incentive, yes. But confidence, no. So he didn't get his confidence from the reward offered, just a little more incentive. And David's older brother, he doesn't offer any confidence to his younger brother either. Look at verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came only to watch the battle. Man, David's older brother, angry, jealous, probably embarrassed about his own fear and cowardice, he lashes out at his younger brother and says, why are you here, kid? Go back to your few measly sheep. You're a nobody of no account, taking care of a few lousy sheep where no, of no significance and no one really cares. And then he gets really personal. He impugns, impugns David's heart motivation and says, I know how conceited you are anyway. I know how wicked your heart is. You're just a little boy who wanted to see real men fight the battle. Needless to say, David's eldest brother didn't instill any confidence in his younger sibling. But he did not recognize or understand David's indomitable spirit. Skip down now to verse 32. Because after watching the Israelite army run in fear, after listening to his brother just lash out and pick him apart, 
for his reason for being on the front lines, David still approaches King Saul with the confident solution he's come up with, with to the continuing stalemate with the enemy. Look at verse 32. David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. I mean, where does he get this confidence? Saul responds, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. Even King Saul does nothing to inspire confidence in David. His first and only volunteer, I might add, to fight the giant. He, Saul says, you can't fight him. You're just a teenager. He's a, he's a fighting machine, this guy. He's a warrior from his youth. You don't stand a chance. That's what the king says back to David. But David then offers the reason for his confidence to counter Saul's less than enthusiastic acceptance of his motion. David reveals the source of his courage, the basis for his confidence to battle against an enemy that threatens his very life. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I mean, David explains to Saul, he says, hey, I've been in this position before. As a shepherd, I've killed a lion and a bear in defending the flock. I have faced threatening situations before with enemies that wanted to devour me. And I've overcome them and defeated them. I have confidence in this situation. Why? Because I know how God has worked and been with me in past situations. That's where David gets his confidence. I've been here before. And God has been faithful to protect me. And not only that, I've overcome the enemy. And God has been with me. That's why I'm confident in this one. And David summarizes the reason for this confidence in verse 37. It's our takeaway truth for this morning. Verse 37, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from this hand of the Philistine. Friends, that's a truth for you and me today. Like David, our confidence comes from remembering what God has already delivered us from. You don't have to generate anything new. You just got to remember. You got to remember how God has delivered us in the past. He's been faithful to deliver me in the past. So therefore, I have complete confidence that he will deliver me in the present and the future, no matter what comes. Why? Because God is faithful. He will deliver me. That's where David gets his confidence. I got to tell you, I know something of this confidence because of what God has delivered me from in the past. I stand today confident in front of you only because of what God has delivered me from in the past. It was, I was 25. I wasn't 16. I was 25 years old. Brand new in ministry. In fact, two months, 60 days as a youth pastor across town here. I didn't know anything. I hadn't been trained in ministry. I didn't know if I even wanted to be there. But the truth is, I was. In fact, my strategy was this. Love teenagers, preach Jesus. Love people, teach Jesus. That's all I knew. 
no ministry skills. I wasn't even particularly good. But I knew I could love people and show them Jesus. And that's what I did for about 60 days. It came time for our first retreat. I had 18 teenagers, and we took them on a retreat to the Berkshire Mountains for a weekend with all these other youth groups. Guest speaker comes in. We had a great time. We're halfway through the retreat, and uh, we're doing a little debrief on the morning session on Saturday. And uh, God did something unbelievable. He actually visited our little youth group there. We're huddled. We're supposed to have like this 15-minute little conversation, and then the kids go flirt, right? And we're there talking about the morning session, and God decides to touch some hearts of the youth group members. And one kid goes, and he says, uh, you know, I'm a phony. I'm a hypocrite. And I, I want God to change me. He starts confessing his sins and, and confessing his stony heart. And all of a sudden, he cried out for God to change him and save him right there. And he did. And then the next one confessed his sins and, and talked about their hypocrisy. And, and God touched him and saved him right there. On and on and on. And in the next three and a half hours, 17 out of 18 kids in this little youth group got saved. God touched the hearts of every single person except one there. It was the most amazing transformational situation I've ever experienced. I still count it as one of the greatest days and experiences of my life. I saw God deliver teenagers right there, right in front of my eyes. Awesome. I come home to church and I'm all excited and Monday I go in the office. I'm exhausted but exhilarated from this incredible weekend of what God has done. I'm in the office at the end of the day. I'm just kind of mopping up details from the retreat. And it's, everyone else has left and uh, I'm just about to go and one of the youth leaders comes to my office door and stands right in the doorway of my office. I, I was a little startled because I was the only one in the church. Didn't expect her to be there. But she shows up and I look up and see who it is and I say, uh, man, have you recovered yet? Because I was exhausted, but again, so excited still. And when I said that, I looked at her and I knew something was terribly wrong. I, I could see it in her face. It was kind of contorted. And, and the only way I can describe it is I looked in her eyes and I saw, I saw hatred. I saw anger. I saw evil. And, and she said to me in a voice not her own, you've ruined everything. And the hair on the back of my neck stood up because I knew I was not talking to the youth leader who I had known for two months. I was talking to an evil spirit that was residing in her. I was talking to a demon face to face. Not only that, she said, you've ruined everything. She says, and I've come here to destroy you. I have to kill you. And as she did, she produced her weapon, which was a pair of scissors. Not your ordinary run-of-the-mill scissors. These were scissors used for cutting big sheets of construction paper, about 16 inches long. The longest, pointiest, most dangerous-looking scissors I had ever seen. And she wasn't holding them like she was going to cut some paper. And before I could even react and think about what to do, she did what she came to accomplish. And she came at me. I'm in my chair. I did the only thing I could think of is I leapt at her with all the force, with all the power, with all the energy I had, went and blocked her arm and, and just tried to take her back. And we went airborne through the air, boom, came down on the floor, halfway in my office, halfway out in the main office. And I'm holding this, this woman's arm trying to, and, and she's not fighting with her power. 
she's, she's got some additional power going here. And I'm, I'm just trying to kind of wrest the, the scissor from her hand and kind of subdue her while we're kind of wrestling around there. I'm holding her down. And the most amazing thing is the senior pastor walks in the office, it, which was a mini miracle because he takes Mondays off. He's never there on Mondays. And this Monday afternoon, he parked his car, left it running, came in the front door because he had to pick something up. Walks in the office, doesn't even know what's going on here. I kind of quickly explain while I'm just trying to hang on to this person and not let them uh, do what they came to accomplish. And then he jumps in and helps me. And the two of us, while we subdue this woman on the office floor, right there, halfway in my office, halfway in the main office, we start, we start calling on the name of Jesus. And we start using the name of Jesus and the power of the blood to cast out demons. And boom, boom, boom. We're freeing this woman of these demons that have tortured her and controlled her for years, for decades. It was the most amazing and terrifying thing I've ever been involved in. And, and God's doing this thing. And we're just, we're pleading the blood. We're pleading the power of his name. And I will tell you people, your Bible is true. The gospels are true. Because at the very name of Jesus, the enemy retreats. He flies. He, he takes off. And so we cast demon after demon after demon out of this woman. A dozen or more. An hour and a half later, we had finally freed her. All that had kind of controlled her and consumed her and terrified her. And we spoke to her and said, we have to talk about this. We have to pray about this. We have to find out how you got here and where we go from here. We, we don't want this to end right here. The first time we could get together, the three of us, that is, was, was Wednesday afternoon. This was Monday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon, she comes back. The senior pastor and I are in, our, in his office this time kind of praying and preparing for this conversation we're going to have with this woman. She appears in his doorway this time. Didn't hear her come in, but she was there. And I saw the same thing I saw two days before. And I knew we were not going to be dealing with this woman. We we're going to be dealing with the evil spirit that was inside her. Because I saw the same contorted face, the same evil, hate-filled, angry look. And sure enough, she started to spew obscene threats and this time she produces her weapon of choice. It's not a scissor. It's a straight razor. It's a box cutter with a four-inch razor blade. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. And same thing, after making her threats, and she made it really clear that we weren't leaving that office that day. In fact, her words were, I'm going to snuff out the light that's inside you. So she, same thing, took her first move. We responded by... Uh, trying to subdue her, I went for the same thing, the weapon arm, took it, ended up down on the ground. Now we're in the senior pastor's office on the floor, and uh, I've got two arms on this hand that is holding this straight razor, and I'm not going to let go. One problem, I realized that I had this arm, two hands down, the other pastor had the arm and trying to control her legs while she's fighting, again, with more strength than her own, and uh, I was vulnerable. Because my right arm, as I'm holding the arm with the razor blade, is right in front of her face. And she bares her teeth, and I'm realizing she's going to take a chunk right out of my forearm. But there's no way I'm going to let go of the weapon hand. So I'm just thinking, all right, Lord, I'm taking one for the team here. Right? And I'm just, I'm just waiting for it to happen. I'll deal with shaking it off once it happens. Sure enough, she bares her teeth. She goes after my arm. Pulls back. She didn't bite me. She opened her jaws, but didn't bite me. Pulls back, and she kind of growled something. She goes in for a second attack. Boom. 
was like this invisible force field around my arm. And I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm about 12 inches away. You know what happened in that moment? I realized that the Bible's true, the gospel's true, that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world, that if God is for me, who can be against me? I realize that the power of Jesus totally annihilates the power of the enemy. I realize everything we know, I lived it in that moment because God was my rock, my salvation, my strong tower, my rear guard. He protected me. And this woman not only couldn't hurt me, she couldn't touch me. And not because of me, it was because the light inside me. Because the one who resides inside me is powerful and strong. And this enemy knew, you don't take on the one who lives inside me. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. And this demon knew it. And they couldn't touch me. That's where I get my confidence. You know what happened in the moment? My spiritual confidence went from here to here. And so, boom, the senior pastor and I said, said, okay, we're cleaning house. We called on Jesus' name and the power of his blood. And again, demon after demon after demon is released from this woman. She was terrorized for decades. And we finally got the whole place, her whole body clean and clear of evil. And I watched, I literally watched the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God replace and overwhelm the kingdom of darkness that had resided in her. I watched it 18 inches away. I saw the whole thing. But at the end of this day, I made sure the demons wouldn't come back. I said, do you want to trust Christ and put your faith in him? And she says, yes, I want to be free. I want the light that's in you. So I led her to Christ right there on the floor of this pastor's office. It was awesome. It was incredible. It was life-changing. Because I saw what God does with a terrified, terrorized life and how he replaces darkness with light. How he frees a woman who's been in bondage and chains for years to the enemy. In a moment, by the power of his name, because of his shed blood, it was awesome. And I have confidence today because of that event 25 years ago. I've seen it. It's real. God is powerful like that. He moves through people who carry his light, who carry his spirit like that. The enemy knows it. You and I just got to remember it. I got to tell you, you and I can have the exact same confidence that David had. Why? Because the Bible has taught us that Jesus has already delivered us. And you just need to remember what he's delivered us from. The Bible says he's, you've been delivered from the power of sin. You've been delivered from the penalty of sin. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You and I just need to remember that. We carry his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, resides in us. That's where we get our confidence. I mean, that's what we're celebrating today in the Lord's table. You realize we're celebrating his broken body. His broken body, the scripture says, breaks the curse. It breaks the curse of sin. It breaks the curse of death because of his broken body. We no longer fear death because of Jesus' broken body. The cross delivers us from the, the power of sin. Sin no longer has its hold on us. We are not slaves to sin anymore because of his broken body. Not only that, we are freed from the fear and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. You realize that's what Jesus did, right? He was condemned on a tree. Why? So you and I would be set free. He was condemned so we go free.
That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he was condemned in our place. We're free. The kingdom of light lives in us because he went to the cross on our behalf. That's the freedom we get through his broken body. We're celebrating it in just a moment. i got to remind you that Christ's death on the cross does not reveal our sinfulness. It reveals our value and worth. Jesus deemed us worthy enough to go to the cross for, to bring us into his kingdom. That's the kind of value and worth we have. That gives us confidence, people, because of his broken body. Not only that, Christ's shed blood delivers us from the penalty of sin. Our sin debt's been paid. Our, our redemption has been purchased by his shed blood on the cross. And there's power in the blood, people. That's not just a great song. There's power in Jesus' blood. He's made us holy and righteous. You realize by his shed blood, we went from sinner to saint, sinner to son and daughter, sinner to holy and righteous, all because of his shed blood for us. That's power, people. We have confidence because there's power in his blood. And I remind you again that Jesus shed his blood not to expose our sin. Jesus shed his blood for you and me to remove your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's removed our sin. We are righteous because of what he's done. That gives us confidence. It's because of what Jesus has delivered us from already. You just have to remember it. If you remember it, you'll have confidence today and tomorrow. Why? Because of his broken body. It's broken the curse. It has removed the power of sin in our lives. And if you remember his blood, because he's removed the penalty of sin, we no longer are condemned. We're no longer guilty. We no longer have to pay that sin debt. Jesus paid it all. It's awesome. It's confidence building. We just got to live like it. Amen? Amen. 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 <clears throat> Come on up. <laughs>